Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast. Today, again, with Hans Uskereit, the great Hans Uskereit, which we had already on our show. Hi, Hans. Hi, thanks for talking to me again. I hope to be able to say something I haven't <laughs> told you before. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, we already, before, before I pressed record, we already had a, you know, a, a couple of topics that we really want to talk about. So, you know, without uh, further ado, I, I guess most of the people that are, let's say, regular listeners of our show um, have also listened to our podcast, although with uh, the international listeners that we gained since we started to record all our episodes in English. Um, um, maybe just a quick introduction of yourself, who you are and uh, yeah, what you're doing. Yeah, I'd be happy to do this. Um, I have worked for over 30 years in artificial intelligence. My first job was uh, in the United States where I also got my PhD. I worked there at the Stanford Research Center, Stanford Research Institute, now SRI, in one of the earliest AI centers. Uh, a few years later, I moved back to Germany, worked for IBM Germany, and then uh, became professor for computational linguistics and uh, one of the scientific directors of the newly founded German Research Center for Artificial Intelligence. Uh, which back then had only two sites in Saarbrücken and Kaiserslautern. I was later the site leader for uh, Saarbrücken. And then uh, again, several years later, I started a DFKI site, a new one in Berlin after reunification and uh, build it up. And the last three years or three years, uh, except for the Corona times now I spent in China, Uh, working in AI there, both as an entrepreneur and, um, and as a researcher. Um, I have um, taught AI, um, done research in AI, and uh, also I co-started uh, several startups. Right now I'm very busy with one of the latest startups uh, I, I started in China and uh, also still active for the German Research Center for Artificial Intelligence. All right, so then let us just jump straight into, uh, yeah, kind of the first thing here, Corona. Something that, I mean, has really impacted every one of us, each and every one of us, and, and uh, let's say most of the things, uh, we've already spent some time today here before recording this podcast, so most of the conversations that we had were also all, obviously about it and um, we decided to well to kind of take an approach on or this or talk about on how how you personally see this whole crisis being approached by Germany for example you know compared to China and also you know the different the different aspects to it you know from from also from a technology perspective so let's just jump into it Yes, I think every one of us is thinking about the uh, pandemics, about the corona crisis, uh, uh, not all the time, but very often. And, and we all try to connect our, our own experience in work and life with the uh, general topic and threats. So artificial intelligence can clearly play a role in uh, fighting pandemics and be prepared for new ones and investigating uh, the mechanisms behind pandemics if it has enough data. So there are some types of data we can get and we built in our company a system that monitored corona effects in, in businesses worldwide. And so that was quite helpful. Yeah? It helped uh, investors and companies to see which corona uh, in inflicted effects uh, you could find every day in the worldwide business. But when it comes to fighting uh, the disease itself, the pandemics, then we really would need much more data about uh, the mechanics of infection, of spreading, of uh, infection chains and clusters. And for that purpose, we would need data that we don't have. And unfortunately, 
our society, as opposed to Asian societies, especially the Chinese one, has decided that what people think is the privacy has a higher priority than getting such data that would be crucial for really finding out which measures are helpful, which ones aren't, why they are helpful or why they are not helpful, and uh, what could be completely additional ways of setting up barriers to the spread of the disease. And it would help us better also uh, uh, to early detect and avoid situations that are dangerous. So unfortunately, our society, right in the beginning, when the talk was to have an, uh, an app, a mobile app, yeah, that would uh, check whether we meet uh, uh, infected people yeah, and would warn us, a warning app, right in the beginning, as a politician, yeah, I would have thought the politician would say two things. One thing is, we have to make sure that really everybody uses it, otherwise it's uh, of completely limited use and it's, it may be even useless for, for uh, uh, scientific investigation. And the second thing as a politician I would have said is probably to say, uh, and we need to establish some structure for keeping the data in such a secure way that we can use them only for following up, for tracing and tracking infection chains and for uh, inducing the right insights for research. And uh, since we cannot know in the beginning which parts of the data would be needed, let's try to get as much data, as many heterogeneous data as possible, and then lock them up and don't give them to the government, don't give them to an individual company, but make them safe, safeguard them at some place, uh, safeguard them technologically and uh, by legislation and, and sanctions and make sure that this wealth of data is only used to the good. No, but our politicians did exactly the opposite of what I just said. Uh, in the meantime, they all stressed the fact it should be completely voluntary to use this app, yeah? meaning that only a small fraction, maybe 25% right now of our society is using it. And secondly, they insisted on the data not being collected uh, centrally and they insisted on not collecting all the data that could be connected, for instance, the one on the location and, and, and not keeping them for research. Yeah? So it's absolutely terrible uh, uh, what happened in, in this respect. We gave away the most powerful means for controlling the spreading of the disease, for tracking, tracing it and for understanding the disease. Uh, briefly, uh, to compare it uh, with the Chinese situation, in China there is an app, everybody who wants to move freely in society, who wants to take uh, planes, uh, to go on flights, to enter public buildings, go to events, needs to have this app. So in a way it's mandatory, yeah, because otherwise you cannot really move in society freely. And then this app will really control uh, whether you got in close contacts with infected people. You got also a traffic light warning type of system, uh, green, red and yellow uh, uh, bar, uh, bar and you got a QR code. As long as you are green, you can safely enter uh, airplanes, buses, uh, department stores, events. And if the whole thing turns yellow, then you are uh, forced to uh, take a test. And if it's red, then you are not allowed to enter because you better uh, stay in isolation until you are free of the uh, suspicion of having the, uh, having the disease. But the side effect is that these data are so valuable for tracing and tracking all these infections, tracking the infection and seeing really how the disease spreads and at what places and uh, at what type of uh, uh, gatherings of people. Yeah, That I, I really, as a scientist and also as a citizen, I don't understand what gets our society to be uh, uh, so scared about it. Uh, another thing is we are always worried about AI bias. Yeah? We are worried that the um, data are biased. And in actually by making the uh, app voluntary, we put up a very bad bias ourselves. Um, 
If you look at the types of people uh, who suffer most from the pandem pandemics uh, in, in, in many countries, uh, including our own, it's not exactly uh, the richest and most educated and well-to-do people, but actually uh, even stronger in the States, but also in Europe, it is very often uh, uh, poorer people. Uh, it is not so educated people, not so much, uh, not, not so well-educated people. It is uh, then, of course, older people who suffer from it. And who are the ones who will download the app? Uh, now you get already, uh, you already see easily a problem because especially among the people that uh, uh, most deserve to be guarded and watched and uh, that are maybe most interesting also for the spreading, uh, they may not have downloaded the app. Uh, on the other side, in our research center and among my friends, nobody has COVID and uh, not even the people I know in the wider circles has COVID, but they have all downloaded the app and look at it every day. So that shows how silly we are with respect. And this example of the Corona app is um, illustrating a very general tendency in our society. Uh, we already could use AI and other analytics methods in much better ways to make our life easier and to improve society, to help in medicine, if we could overcome this very um, uh, old-fashioned and uh, um, guided by instinct, yeah, fear that is still there in society and uh, that uh, somehow prevents us from taking the right decisions. Yeah, um, I totally agree with you on, on all of these levels. And we, we had a, a bunch of examples on that, you know, uh, in regards to how that super focused perspective on, on data privacy basically kind of is reflected in almost uh, all, let's say, layers, you know, that we have. Either it be on the political, uh, on the political uh, side, for example, you gave the, uh, you, you gave the uh, example on the European AI strategy on regards to the, and, you know, how many papers are actually about, you know, uh, the, the value creation through AI and, and how many are, let's say, actually preventing it. Or, for example, the other, the, the other thing that you mentioned is the, um, the, the, the ID, the ID that you mentioned um, that we had here in Germany, uh, you know, already uh, more than a decade ago, which, which was introduced where people as well, you know, were fighting against in terms of uh, privacy. So there's a, a bunch of examples and, you know, let's, let's kind of move into, um, you know, what we see in, in our, um, you know, in the business world, you know, that because that is, uh, that is ultimately also very interesting. We talked also about, you know, what is, what is kind of the next thing that we need to see on, on an enterprise level, right? What, is, uh, what are things that need to happen or what, what are basically the, the areas where things need to be moving and, and things need to happen in order to, let's say, really release a lot of value? Let, let's, let's, let's turn a little bit to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm happy to do this. Um, in, um, yeah, we are at the turning point now. We are at a point where... Um, Many AI applications have proven already useful in uh, daily life, especially in the area of internet AI, uh, e-commerce and so on, entertainment. And now, uh, also by the way, already in uh, companies and enterprises in, in, the, in the world of business, but most of them are very, what we call narrow AI applications. So that means we have um, uh, some task uh, to solve, maybe to check the quality of, um, of a certain uh, uh, product yeah, after it is assembled or uh, after it is painted or uh, uh, surface treated. And, um, or uh, we have to predict something when a machine will fail or we have to predict some demand. And in each of these cases, um, uh, there's an AI model that is trained uh, either on, uh, on, on real uh, events that happen in the world, yeah, uh, failures of things and so on, or is trained by working on uh, human 
uh, annotations of, um, of, of, of data, for instance, how did humans classify pictures or uh, quality issues or something. Yeah? So they are trained either on the world itself or on, on, on huge numbers of uh, human judgments and then they solve exactly one problem. So, but um, the next step um, uh, that, that uh, AI is predicted to take is uh, to automate uh, entire processes or optimate entire processes uh, in uh, production or in uh, support areas like uh, human resources, uh, supply chain, finances, accounting and so on, or into management itself, the big world of uh, complex decision making. And yes, AI can do that, but for that purpose, Actually, several AI methods need to be combined. The narrow AI is not suitable for that anymore. So we need to combine, for instance, the interpretation of human text or the communication with people through chatbots. And that again has maybe spoken language. Then it needs access to some knowledge, some knowledge about uh, products, about processes. Not all of that can be acquired purely by deep learning. Um, yeah, because for instance, Let's imagine uh, the decisions of CEOs in certain, in certain situations. We don't have thousands and, and millions of certain investment decisions from which we could learn. Yeah? They are much smaller numbers. And also, every new situation is different. So for these AI applications, we urgently need to combine the power of deep learning, of neural learning, uh, with another powerful means that we already have for gathering knowledge, Right now, it's usually called knowledge graphs. It's the way of assembling uh, immense amounts of knowledge, also partially by learning, uh, but partially also by injection of knowledge by humans. Yeah, it can be a mix of both. And uh, if we combine the learning with this basic knowledge about uh, technical processes, about uh, technologies, materials, uh, uh, business processes, and so on, then we will get a very, very powerful new line of applications that go in their, uh, in their um, impact um, much beyond uh, current AI applications. However, we should be careful and not expect those to take over now all the decision making from the, uh, from the human uh, management, the human executives. There will always be for quite a long time to be the need for humans, but they will have to work together with technology in new ways that neither technology is suited for, nor humans are used to yet. So in complex decision making, now there's uh, not so many situations anymore in which executives take their decision in isolation, you know, where they do it alone. Usually it's collective decision making and many people have to prepare the decisions. But in the future, much more of this preparation of getting the right knowledge and data, simulating possible effects of what the decision will affect and so on, will be done by artificial intelligence. And this new type of interaction between humans and uh, uh, AI still has to be developed. It's not there yet. And that will be one of the exciting tasks of AI for the years to come. It is as well partially with uh, a conversation actually with your wife, uh, Faye. And uh, there's, we, we, I, I've had multiple, multiple conversations that went into this direction of, okay, you know, um, how do we actually infuse, you know, uh, an intelligence component to our existing value chain, right? And combining, you know, because the, you know, the vast knowledge that lies within processes, right? That lies within, you know, how are things actually done, right? Things, knowledge that has been accumulated for, for, for years, right? Um, that, that comes together and, 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 and most people in AI actually, you know, they, they lack that, right? They lack the ability to connect basically the methodologies, right? The techniques actually from in, on, uh, in AI with, with that, right? With the domain knowledge and it's definitely kind of a, a challenge as well, obviously for organizations to tackle that. But one big other area, which uh, we also wanted to talk about is um, not only the enterprise level, because I think for most people, I guess, you know, when we talk about AI, it's, it's, it's mostly, on, especially on our podcast, it's on the enterprise level. But I think what's very interesting, which you propose actually to talk to about today, is, uh, is how, how can we actually improve our personal lives, right? Or 
you know, the management of our personal life. And, you know, before you actually, you know, propose to talk about this topic, <laughs> I, to be honest, I, ne- I, I didn't really think about it. But the funny thing is, once you propose it to me to talk about this, I was like, you know, there's actually so many moments in life that, that, that you have as a human being where you exactly think about, you know, why isn't this... You know, why isn't this the way it is, you know, and why isn't it solved already by, by you know, some sort of intelligence, you know, even though and, and it, it doesn't seem hard. So maybe, um, you know, share your thoughts that you had on, on, on this whole topic, because, you know, you spent some time on this. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, I, I will give this as an, uh, as an uh, example, central example, how our personal life can be changed. Uh, and again, it has to do with both. It has to do with the ways in which AI changes companies and it has to do uh, with our fears that we have to overcome. Yeah? And, uh, and, and, and we should really uh, do this for ourselves and help society to overcome these uh, uh, kind of um, dumb and not very well informed anxiety. Our life is getting more and more complex. The complexity of a middle-class household now, with all the uh, possessions that the people have with their financial obligations, their contracts, insurances, uh, bank accounts, things that we buy, things that we have to pay, that we have subscribed to and so on. Uh, all of our possessions, maybe real estate, uh, all of these things, health, yeah, or our uh, entire health information, uh, information about our our clothing, about uh, calendar, about plans, and so on. Uh, relationships. It's all so complex. It's very very complex, and it is probably more complex uh, than than the complexity of a of a small enterprise yeah, uh, uh, hundred years ago. Yeah. So why why couldn't we uh, do two steps? Uh, one is do the step that enterprises have already done, have a, have a central uh, resource planning component like an SAP for daily life. Yeah? So where we um, have enterprise, not in this case enterprise, but household or personal resource planning and resource management. And the second thing is uh, why if we now try to apply AI to enterprise resource planning, why couldn't we do the same thing to our daily life? So there are two steps, and uh, again, they have to do a lot with interoperability and standards. It has to do with the fact that right now, yes, all the products we buy, they have different warranties and different uh, product specifications. Some place we know the weight and the volume of all these things, but if we are asked to determine the entire weight of our household, maybe for move, uh, nobody would be able to calculate that. Yeah? So because these things are so spread out and it would take us weeks to collect all the information probably. Yeah? So And if we are asked about the price of all of our things uh, accumulated together uh, and maybe uh, together with the price that it would cost to uh, recover these things or uh, purchase them again today, uh, again, we would be overwhelmed and, and would not be able to do it. But all this information is there. So we have already lots of electronic information on all these products, on all these contracts that we have. And bringing them together and somehow letting a system administer many of these things and make sure uh, that deadlines are observed, uh, that we can make uh, bank transfers very easily without having to type in long account numbers or addressee information or uh, purpose of what we send out. It's lots of useless things that we have to do now. They could be all done and the systems that help us, our assistants could become smarter and smarter learning on these data just as we now predicted uh, to be the case for enterprises, yeah? that systems have a demand forecast, that they know exactly what would be next steps and so on. So our daily life together with insurances, health information, all this thing could become much, much easier than it is today. Uh, and in Germany, we don't live in the most... Um, uh, in the most uh, 
advanced futuristic society in this respect, I have to say. Um, during my three years in China, I got exactly uh, two paper letters during the whole time, although I was fully integrated, had lots of contracts, bank accounts, credit cards, insurances there. Uh, in, in Germany, if I leave my home for more than two weeks, my mailbox is overflowing. Yeah? So our society now in Germany makes it especially hard yeah, to administer all these things. Uh, there is very strict rules in which none of the providers that provide me services are allowed to exchange any data. They have no interest in, um, in standardizing the data in such a way that they are interoperable, yeah, that I could uh, plug in my, uh, my health information with the insurance information for myself, for my own purposes. Yeah? Because people are so much worried about abuse of that, uh, uh, like in many other areas in uh, German society, I mean, you, you experience it yourself just when you surf on the internet, yeah, you, have to, uh, you have to click so many AGB, so many, uh, you have to click so many uh, uh, buttons uh, and, and tell uh, the system that you have read the conditions behind them, which you never could do in your lifetime. And uh, so the whole thing is a fraud, it's a scheme, or it's a, um, it's a scam of a new type. Yeah? This whole data protection is a scam, a complete fraud of a new type. And uh, so you have to do all of that. And uh, right now also all of these data are on purpose by the system kept interoperable and user unfriendly as most as they as it can be uh, uh, you're supposed to answer letters on paper um, uh, none of the you have to fill out the same information 10 times because people tell you because of data protection uh, data cannot be shared in the, any circumstances so uh, instead of um, Sorry for being back now at my critical part, but uh, we need to resolve this part. We need to trust uh, technology and we can, it can be trusted in that sense that technology enables to preserve and even enforce privacy even better than non-technological means uh, if we do it right and still keep the advantages of digital data processing and of learning from data and of keeping as many data as we can about ourselves. Yeah, that will in the end make our lives so much easier and more livable and more pleasurable uh, than uh, uh, our lives uh, are now because of this ever-growing complexity. So I think the same point can be made in the area of uh, medicine, interoperability between doctors, uh, pharmacies, um, other health providers. Uh, it, it, it can be made, yeah, in, in, as I mentioned, in the financial sector and so on. And this not only pertains to daily life, but also the companies that cater to the individual that uh, sell products, uh, including insurances, um, bank accounts, subscriptions, information products, physical products, complex products. Um, it could change uh, the way that they are really selling uh, their goods, uh, describing them, uh, sharing data about them, providing them. If these things are interoperable, for instance, the life for architects, interior designers, uh, for people, for yourself, when you uh, uh, yeah, des design your outfit that you wear, when you uh, buy new furniture and so will be much, much easier than it is today. All right, those are a lot of statements. And um, you know what I just thought about, and especially on the health perspective, right? Um, the funny thing is that people trust their lives, right? When they go to doctors, right? So you go there and you basically, you, you get a treatment, right? And you, you do that because you trust, right, the person um, that is operating, basically, that he's capable of, of you know, of, of doing so. And the funny thing is, you know, that, you know, this is part of, let's say, human DNA to do so. However, you know, when it comes then to the, to just the, let's say, the information about ourselves, right? We are not, let's say, or in, in society, it's basically kind of the standard that, you know, yeah, we're not we're not leaving our information basically with this with this entity, right? With this doctor or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever with this with this health institute or whatever that is. And it's so stupid if you think about it, because 
because why right if is that more precious than your life right because like you do that you do it as well right so you, if you if you if you go to a doctor you, you you get a treatment right so you give your kind of your life into the hands of that exactly. person right and then you you basically give the one thing that is most precious to you because like i mean you know the information about you, like how old you are where you've been born and where you live you know is you know how's that comparable to your life right so and that alone shows again the yeah, the, the stupidity in that sense. But when you when you think about it, right, you, you painted it actually quite perfect because there's so many, so many variables that make our life, that make up our life and so many things that, that, that it, you know, if you look at, at it, it, it's actually quite complex. So that would require on all ends to have standards and also also partnerships between different types of organizations, right? That would require to have partnerships between um, uh, between a bank, for example, and, um, you know, an energy provider, for example, or whatever, you know, because there needs to be some sort of um, trust that, you know, that, that the, uh, an entity where I have, you know, some sort of information or that has some, some sort of information is able to share it with another entity. For example, if you think about all the weights, right, mm. it needs to be like, okay, so who's keeping track of all these weights, right? The logical sense in a, in a purely e-commerce type of world, right? Where we order everything on Amazon, you know, each SKU that we have um, has, a, has a weight associated to it, right? Every product that we have on Amazon. And so ultimately in my purchasing, purchasing history or, you know, but I don't only buy on Amazon. So I have all these other things, right? So where do I accumulate all this information, right? Where's my personal data center? Mm -hmm. Where's my, where's the Hansel Skolai data center, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's more complex than so life is complex personal life is complex but then again the execution of that desired state is also complex right it's highly complex of course so um, I, I think it's good that you mentioned uh, the or that you um, uh, uh, provided this comparison with the um, uh, medical world if I go to the hospital where I had a um, surgery a year before and I say now at, um, in, in the vicinity of the place where uh, something was removed, maybe an appendix from me, uh, then uh, I get some pain and they say, oh, what happened uh, to you a year before? I'm, I'm a little surprised and I say, oh, you should have all the information about my surgery back then and what you, exactly you did. And they say, no, no, out of data protection, we had to all throw it out. Uh, and, and the same thing with a bank. If you go there to the bank and they say, oh, no, we don't know anymore what you did here yesterday. And so we don't know. That's clearly not what we want. So we want, we want the places that we trust to keep the information on us and to use it for the right purposes. But strangely enough, other types of information, we are reluctant now, yeah, but it's mainly affected by the fears that are created by uh, maybe uh, uh, media and, uh, and, and, and people who earn money by creating fears. Yeah? Um, uh, than by real experience. Yeah? But in other cases, we are very scared. We are scared, oh, the Corona app should not know where I was yesterday at uh, five o'clock. Even if this knowledge is very secured, like my money in a bank, like my surgery report in a hospital, it is very secured at some point. Yeah? And, it, uh, and I can make sure by technological means and by um, uh, uh, law, to make sure that this is not abused, that neither my neighbor uh, nor my relatives get to know it, yeah, nor my employer. So it is all very easy. It is there's very simple solutions to all of these things. But now, of course, the question is still how to fuse all these data yeah, uh, that are uh, together. And this is a real, uh, a, a huge intellectual uh, um, a problem. Uh, but that will be solved in the future anyway, because it's clear that this will come. I think all all the um, 
the, the enemies can do right now is uh, postpone it until uh, uh, maybe until they are retired. Yeah? And uh, that's the most they can do because it's coming anyway. It will happen because it's so clear that this is the next stage of uh, human development. Uh, that uh, we uh, have models uh, in data, digital models, Uh, of our world, of our desires, of our possessions, just like we have models of production, of products and so on. It, it will come and, and of financial transactions. It will come. Um, it's in, inevitable. It will come. Now the question is, and this is a real intellectual challenge, how to organize it in such a way that trusted mechanisms, as we have them in other fields, in every field they may be a little different, are established that allow a certain amount of sharing, of fusing data, not allowing others, and uh, prevent abuse by everything that we don't want to have. Right now we are trying to prevent abuse by simply not having these data, which is the most silly way you can think about it. Yeah? Not, it's like not having, like you would do science without gathering uh, empirical information. Yeah? So, and saying, uh, uh, yeah, we, we, we try to get, because everything is based on knowledge. Knowledge about, we are very important. Knowledge about ourselves is very important. Not just knowledge about famous people in history, yeah? that is gathered. But every one of us is also important. We should not prevent the gathering of knowledge about ourselves, yeah? because it can be used for doing very good things, for helping us in life, for allowing us uh, maybe to live longer, yeah? to uh, be free of certain worries and so if you do it right. But it's true uh, how to organize that uh, and how to establish these challenges. So um, uh, in other fields it took quite a long time. Uh, right now, for instance, when you board an airplane, you trust that you Uh, will land safely because you know there's a very good interaction between the tower of the airport, the flight controllers, uh, then the public flight control, uh, the mechanics who tested the airplane before it uh, took off and so on. So there's quite a complex interplay of different uh, institutions, mechanisms, functions yeah, that make sure that now flying, although It, it, it is really by physics, yeah, not the easiest thing, maybe more difficult than uh, riding on a bike or uh, uh, going in a car, is safer now than riding on a bike or going in a car. Yeah, so, and the same way we have to do that also in the world of data. We need to create an ecosystem of data exchange, we need to have trust centers, and we need legislation that does not punish collecting and keeping and using data, but that punish abusing data. Because we do not want to protect data, we want to protect people. Data protection is silly, absolutely dumb. We need to protect people from the abuse, not from the use, from the positive use of the data. So, and these things are actually, if you spend the same amount of money that you spend now, Uh, uh, and you call it spending on AI and big data, but you spend it actually for watchdogs and people who try to fill huge reports of how to prevent things from happening instead of uh, propelling us to the forefront of research and technology and commercialization. Yeah? If you spend the same amount of money uh, in designing legislature that would really protect people from abuse of data, then Uh, uh, protect uh, data from being created and being used. And if you would spend the same amount of uh, energy and, and costs on designing these uh, schemes of uh, uh, data interoperability, data exchange and trust centers and trust mechanisms, yeah, then uh, we, we, we may be able to do it. But it's interesting uh, uh, that you, uh, uh, Jonathan, that you men men mentioned earlier the uh, identity card. Ten years ago, Germany um, uh, introduced uh, the machine-readable ID card. Uh, again, there was this uh, dumb fear that you have now uh, directed against AI and data collection. Back then it was against the machine-readable uh, ID card. Uh, some ideologists, they rather went to prison than to accept carrying uh, this type of ID card. People made a very big thing out of it and they were very scared. 
And then the government tried to turn the whole thing. Yeah, finally, the government said, okay, we, we are actually introducing the card. It will do us good. And we even make life easier because people now can use the ID card for doing a digital signature which right now is a dream in Germany. It's still a dream. Yeah? For 10 years, officially, this thing uh, worked. But then they did it again, guided by fear and anxiety instead of by pragmatism and realism. And they introduced a system with uh, uh, seven security factors instead, two or three. And in the end, it became unusable so that even uh, many computer scientists who tried to install the right heart and software for giving the digital signature gave up on it. Yeah? And the individual citizen didn't have a chance. Yeah? So, And I'm afraid that with AI and with all these possibilities that we have now, may it be uh, against the pandemics or to improve our life, uh, to have a better health system, uh, to uh, reduce the complexity of daily life, are right now uh, in, in, a, in a very, very bad shape in our society. We have to make sure that we overcome uh, uh, this. It, it is like a huge, huge burden. Yeah? It's a huge, those are, I feel, sympathetic. Yeah? I, I know that many people from social sciences, humanities, yeah, many people from other areas, uh, uh, they, they have a they, they have a big fear yeah, because there's something happening that they don't really understand and they only see uh, uh, they only see um, uh, very uh, dystopian uh, bad effects maybe also fueled by um, uh, by science fiction and uh, yeah, and by uh, other fear mongers and uh, I feel bad about them because I, I feel sympathetic. I think they are scared. And so we have to do something in society uh, to heal this. It's like a healing. It should be something like uh, maybe like a psychotherapeutic uh, collective process. Yeah, uh, uh, We have to overcome it because otherwise uh, it will um, uh, kill technological progress. Uh, it will keep us from being able to compete with other parts of the world and it will reduce quality of life and also lead to a polarization in our country uh, that we don't want to have between the ones that are um, uh, pro-technology and try to make it uh, usable and useful and, uh, and others uh, who try to prevent. We should rather work together yeah, on uh, on, on finding better solutions for our personal, uh, medical and social problems. I mean, there's really not much I can add here. You know, the only thing that I thought about when you talked about these seven steps is that they, they just thought that a two-factor two authentication wasn't enough. That's why they, they chose yes. seven steps, you know, <laughs> so just yeah. to make it more complex and secure, you know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they are scared. Nobody wants to be blamed later yeah, to yeah. have not made it secure enough. Yeah. For a while, people are still slow in using internet banking. Uh, many people do not really like also use, even in Germany, even credit cards. Even the use of credit cards is much lower than in other countries. Yeah. I don't know what's going on yeah, with this yeah. population. Why? They, they think that in other countries all these things they are afraid of uh, work out so nicely and, and why these things would create a, a problem only here, only here in Germany. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe they know something that, uh, that you and I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? But, um, you know, kind of as a last topic maybe that, uh, to, to talk about because what you said, uh, you know, stopping, stopping the opportunities, you know, that this that Europe also has, you know, one of the, I think one of the last things that I would like kind of to talk to you about is there is specific parts uh, or specific domains of application, you know, of the uh, of application of artificial intelligence where, you know, the race has already been, you know, it's a lost, lost case, basically, right? It's, it doesn't make sense. You know, there's a lot of opportunities where people just say, you know, and for example, the social platforms, right? It doesn't make sense for Europe to kind of you know, I don't think that there's going to be another social platform uh, that, that is going to come out of Europe, right? And that there are certain domains where Europe has, let's say, expertise in, right? And there are certain, uh, you know, just let's say, yeah, fields where, you know, Europe still has a chance to, you know, to, to get their stake at the table. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe let's talk a little, like as a last point for today, let's talk about that. You know, what, is, what do you see there as a status quo? 
and you know what needs to happen in order for uh, Europe to. Yes. So when it comes to existing AI technology, existing, I mean, in a in a sense that the uh, basic uh, AI methods exist, but now. Uh, um, uh, what's needed is commercialization yeah, in different application in different fields, adaptation to different needs. Then indeed we are uh, far behind in, uh, in, in many huge application areas such as in, uh, in internet applications like um, e-commerce and uh, social networks and internet search and so on. Um, and we are also behind in consumer electronics but that shouldn't be surprising because uh, out of similar mechanisms as I described them with respect to AI, we already lost consumer electronics earlier yeah, in, in, in Germany. That's not anymore our turf. Um, in autonomous driving, in mobility, it's still undecided whether we still have a chance or not. Uh, uh, we still have a very strong um, automotive industry, we still have Airbus in Europe, uh, where Germany is heavily involved, and uh, it is um, now not just a matter of ambition, but again of reducing barriers of uh, pragmatic and uh, courageous uh, uh, moves and, uh, and uh, experimentation, whether we can still um, um, compete or whether we lose that simply uh, also um, and therefore maybe the future of, uh, of um, uh, automotive and uh, aerospace uh, manufacturing in the long run. Um, but there's one area in the application that uh, we, we, we are very strong and where we haven't lost yet and where there are very courageous, very, very good, very optimistic uh, signals. And uh, this is, of course, um, um, the application of AI. I mentioned that already in enterprises, in production, but also other types of uh, enterprises. Um, in production, we have the strong movement of Industry 4.0, which, by the way, again, has to be careful because, again, even there, the um, um, a, a large group of um, um, uh, former proponents built up who are now working more on uh, uh, regulation organization than on the real breakthroughs. So be careful not to waste that. But uh, there we have a very good chance, Industry 4.0, uh, still because our, um, our, our industries, even the hidden champions, even the um, uh, medium enterprises yeah, are, are still technologically leading. They have great ambition when it comes to technology and to new methods. So, and especially in the area of enterprise, uh, of um, enterprise uh, management, enterprise administration, where uh, uh, Germany with SAP, Software AG, other companies uh, has been very strong for a long time already. Um, Companies uh, were rather open, rather open, yeah, uh, so far uh, to the new technologies. At least, uh, uh, if they could install the whole thing securely on on premise now in the cloud uh, area, we still have to see whether the industry is ready to follow this move. They will have to, I'm sure. Um, so there, we still have a have, have huge potential. Yeah, we have huge potential. We could even be leading easily, leading. Maybe we are already. Yeah, because it's uh, it's un, undecided because the the revenues are not flowing yet. Yeah. So, but we we, we, we if we play it right, we could come, come out first. Even yeah? uh, Germany and other parts of Europe. Um, so that is uh, the part uh, about methods that already exist in a way. But the real revolutions in AI, and this may sound funny now after all these years of AI hype, the real revolutions of AI are still ahead of us. Uh, they will actually come uh, as soon as it's possible to combine this immense power of um, neural network learning, of learning experience. Implicit knowledge can be combined with explicit knowledge, the learning, acquisition, use, management of explicit knowledge, because that is exactly the power of the human brain. The implicit neural 
learning uh, already monkeys and dogs have. Yeah? But, the, but combining it with explicit knowledge, yeah? being able to be taught explicitly knowledge and combine the implicit and explicit, this is what makes a human really intelligent. So humans need this combination and in this combination will be lots of power on the technological side. Why? Because on the one hand um, technology, uh, a neural network uh, can learn from many, many uh, experiences uh, because it can be copied. Yeah? It can be copied and it can be pre-trained and further trained and post-trained and trained again and transferred to other tasks. It can be reused again and again, like we would take a brain of a, of a, of a genius and would uh, implant it again and learn even more yeah? for, for 100 more years or copy it to many, many uh, uh, different heads and let them also learn for this one brain. Yeah? So that's, uh, and, 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 and there's unlimited capacity, yeah? so uh, almost unlimited capacity. So, uh, it is, uh, so technology can be so much better on that part, but also on explicit knowledge. Let's say things like the Google Knowledge Graph yeah? the, uh, uh, that has billions of facts already stored. No human is ever able to store only a fraction of it in our brains, because our brains are very limited when it comes to explicit knowledge. Yeah? We cannot even learn a whole book word by word, but, uh, but uh, the machines can learn millions of books word by word, yeah? so, and, and, and extract knowledge from that. So actually the real revolution is still ahead of us, and when this revolution comes, uh, I would think that uh, uh, Germany and Europe uh, theoretically, theoretically has a great chance, theoretically, because uh, Germany was already uh, um, uh, leading when it came uh, to um, uh, laying the foundations of deep learning and neural learning. And uh, Germany and Europe are also uh, quite in the leadership when it comes to knowledge graphs, to managing, storing, uh, explicit knowledge, inferencing over it. But unfortunately, I have to say, in order for that, but so far we were leading and never turned it into profits, because uh, actually we lost all these things to United States, and from United States they also went to China. And so, uh, and all one after the other of these leads we lost when it came to commercialization. Yeah. And that again has to do with this basic mentality. Now we are back at the beginning. If this society manages to overcome this deep, deep hesitation and fear, if it could be healed yeah, from this pathological um, psychosis, uh, then I think yeah, it's, it's a collective psychosis, I would say. Yeah? Uh, if it can be healed from that and be as pragmatic as the American or maybe even as, maybe even more so as the Chinese society, then together with our intellectual potential that we have in research and with a strong industry that we have, oh gosh, we will be really uh, flying. Yeah, we will be flying all over, but uh, we'll be leading all this thing. We have the potential to do that. But unfortunately, it's not the scientists in that case that need to be blamed. But those many, many people uh, who you can see if you search on Twitter, Facebook and read the statements of the most intelligent politicians. Yeah? When it comes to technology, it's all very, very sad. Yeah. I, 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 I am actually thinking whether I should comment on this or not, because, you know, I could actually just leave it at here because it, it you know, it's a very good representation of our conversation that we had on on this particular podcast, but also before recording this. I, I mean, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. Thanks, Hans, again for having, uh, you know, having with us such a great conversation. Uh, it was a pleasure as, as, as also on the first time. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually very much certain that this episode is as well going to have the same uh, positive uh, yeah, recognition and feedback that we had on the first part. Uh, so thank you. Thank you very much.